North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of The Impossible State. I guess this is our holiday episode, as it's our last one before we'll take a break until the new year. Um, we're here with a very special guest and a good friend, Scott Snyder, uh, who has written a new book uh, called The United States-South Korea Alliance, Why It May Fail and Why It Must Not. Uh, just just out uh, this month, right? That's right. This month yeah. with the uh, Council on Foreign Relations would make a great Christmas gift or holiday gift for those of you who are doing some last-minute shopping. Um, let me properly introduce uh, uh, Scott Snyder. He is Senior Fellow for Korea Studies and Director of the Program on U.S.-Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, prior to that, he was... Um, you were at the Asia Foundation prior yeah. to that, right? Mm -hmm. Spent uh, over a decade at the Asia Foundation and four years as the rep, uh, representative for the Asia Foundation in Seoul, um, where, uh, where he also found, founded and directed the Center for U.S.-Korea Policy. Uh, he was a senior associate at Pacific Forum CSIS uh, and also worked uh, at USIP, U.S. Institute of Peace, and in the Contemporary Affairs Program of the Asia Society in New York, which is when we first met. That yep. was, when was that? You were doing that Almost when? Almost 30 years ago. Almost 30 years ago. Yep. There you go. So a long time ago. He's the author of many books. One of my, uh, two of my favorites is the book that you co-authored with Brad Glosserman, uh, Japan-South Korea Identity Clash, I yep. think it was called, which I still assign in my class um, at Georgetown. Uh, and also one of your first books was on uh, I think it was North Korean negotiating style. That's right. Uh, negotiating with US, on the edge. Negotiating on the edge with USIP. Because I remember then Dick Solomon, who was head of USIP, really thought that negotiating styles were different, right? Uh, depending on the countries. And North Korea certainly is a different, a different type of country. Um, <clears throat> so the uh, prolific author, he received his BA from Rice, MA at Harvard, and he was a Thomas G. Watson Fellow at Yonsei University. Um, and I think it's okay for us to say that Scott will also be taking a new position uh, as president and CEO of the Korea Economic Institute of America, KEIA. So congratulations, Scott, on that. Thank you. That's, that's, uh, that's terrific news. I guess that means you'll be moving a couple of blocks down the, down the street. Five blocks. Five blocks down mm -hmm. the street. So that, that's great. A forever Washingtonian, <laughs> Scott Snyder. Um, uh, I forgot to introduce myself, Victor Cha, Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS, Professor at Georgetown University. Um, so, Scott, congratulations on this new book. This is, uh, this is really terrific. Um, <clears throat> it's got a very provocative title. Uh, um, why it will, why, what is it? Why it may fail and why it must not. So I guess we can take from this that you are taking a critical look at the alliance uh, at a time when everybody seems to be very positive, 100% positive about the alliance. 
Um, but let me start by asking you, um, and I always like to ask this of all authors, is you know, when you go into writing a book project, you have all these expectations and ideas, um, and sometimes it turns out the way you want it to, sometimes there are surprises. So I guess the first question I wanted to ask you was, what was sort of the most interesting thing that you found in this book from your perspective? Um, this could be in terms of the research or the reaction you've gotten to the book uh, thus far, how it's been talked about in, in the public, anything like that. And thanks again for being on the show. Sure, Victor. Well, thanks for having me. And I would really point to two things. When I began the book, uh, I really was investigating what now feels like a very contrarian argument uh, that, in fact, uh, the U.S. and South Korea were at risk of uh, essentially eviscerating the alliance. And of course, I started writing under Presidents Trump uh, and President Moon. Mm, mm. Uh, and I think that at that time, what really stood out to me was uh, that the alliance had been very good during its history at preparing for possible external threats, but that increasingly the combination of domestic political polarization uh, and uh, America first or Korea first leadership could constitute a threat from within that might unravel alliance cooperation. Mm -hmm. And so I really tried to dig in and investigate that. Uh, the second thing that I think stands out uh, about my framing of that investigation is really the opportunity to take a look at what happened between uh, Trump and Moon um, um, uh, and Biden and Yoon, because within the course of about five years, uh, we essentially had all the various leadership combinations, political leadership combinations between 2017 and 2022, between Korean conservatives and Korean progressives and American Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to dig in and, and look at you know, which combination worked best and what that can tell us about uh, the configurations related to pro-alliance versus pro-exclusive nationalism. Uh, and its impact uh, on uh, alliance durability. And I think that uh, what I showed uh, was that actually empirically, uh, we're seeing the best possible combination right now uh, between Biden and Yoon because they're both pro-alliance. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is also the case that the challenges to the alliance are not from just one side of the political spectrum. They can come from either side of the political spectrum in both countries. Mm. Uh, and so I think that this issue of domestic political polarization does bear watching uh, because um, if a populist leader is elected that doesn't really believe in the alliance, then that could take us into some pretty stormy waters. Mm -hmm. So um, so then let's, let's uh, try to get your bottom line up front, since this is the way we advertised this talk, uh, um, this, uh, this particular show. Um, so your bottom, bottom line, I mean, and, and this is not to take away from people for, to buy the book. You should still buy the book. Um, um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about whether Trump will come back to the White House. How do you think that the alliance will fare? I mean, um, um, if I'm getting my political calendars correct, um, if Trump were to come back to the White House, he'd be spending, you know, a good bit of time with Yun, right, because uh, Yun's term goes for five years. So uh, what, what do you think? How do you think the relationship will go in that sort of situation? Well, and I'm not very good at prediction. I'm much better at analysis than I am at prediction. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that the distinctive aspects that we saw in the first Trump administration 
that I think really was challenging to most foreign affairs analysts uh, was that um, President Trump's uh, decision-making was almost always situational and almost always based on near-term political benefit. Uh, and so it means that there's not necessarily a strategic framework that is guiding that kind of decision-making. Mm -hmm. And that can either be wonderful for the alliance or it can be disastrous for the alliance, depending on the combination and depending on the issues of the moment. So the way I'm looking at it, um, you know, we may not, we may or may not see another uh, Trump-Kim bromance. We may or may not see another set of tensions over burden sharing. Uh, it'll really depend on what happens. And I've actually already made an argument uh, in the national interest that uh, there are three factors that would definitely uh, change the possible outcome of Trump policy toward North Korea. Uh, one is that we have uh, Yoon rather than Moon, and so there's not an intermediary pushing for um, U.S.-North Korea dialogue. Two, the strategic competition between the U.S. and China has deepened. Mm. Uh, and then I think the third factor is really the uh, emergence of the domestic nuclear acquisition discussion in South Korea and how South Koreans would respond to uh, Trump as the standard bearer for the credibility of alliance commitments uh, to South Korea. So on the first point, uh, you mentioned that, um, you know, Trump has a very sort of myopic, uh, politically self-interested view that informs how he makes decisions about allies. Um, so the pre, you know, the, as, so this is my characterization, it may not be yours, but my sense was that the previous administration, the Moon government, understood that, and they basically tried to use that or manipulate that in a way that they could advance their own goals, right, which was inter-Korean reconciliation, getting to the summits, um, CMA, you know, railroads, all those sorts of things. Um, so also not really focused on the alliance either. Right. Um, what do you think with a Yun government? Would they? How do you think that they would respond to that sort of mindset by Trump? Well, I think what's interesting about the Yun government is that he's already placed uh, the U.S. first uh, in his um, set of foreign policy priorities, mm -hmm. um, and so you know, in a way, I think the challenge is uh, how can. Uh, President Yoon uh, managed the possible politicization of some of the accomplishments that have already occurred uh, between Yoon and Biden. Uh, and really that revolves around uh, President Trump's propensity to take the accomplishments of his predecessor and try to unravel them. Mm. And so that's, I think, where the biggest challenge that President Yoon uh, might face uh, would be. Um, and then the opportunity, and this is, I think, uh, I don't know yet uh, how President Yoon would necessarily respond to this, but I think it's very clear that one area in which President Moon excelled uh, was actually in uh, flattering President Trump uh, and in pointing to Moon's agenda as something that could also be in Trump's interest. And so I think that's what we saw really with the way in which the Moon administration engaged with the Trump administration to open that pathway for dialogue mm. uh, between the U.S. Uh, and North Korea and President Moon's you know, mention of how President Trump really deserved a Nobel Peace Prize, that kind of thing. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what sorts of uh, tools um, President Yoon might have up his sleeve, whether he has uh, a second song beyond American Pie that he wants <laughs> to roll out for President Trump. Uh, <laughs> 
Does he play golf? So I don't know if he plays golf. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, so uh, I think that the key really is for uh, South Korea to try to find a way to place itself at the center of Trump's political agenda in order to reap specific benefits. But that might also come at a domestic political cost. And so that's where it gets really complicated. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, like, you know, some of the issues that came up during Moon were like the two big ones were, of course, host nation support and troop withdrawals. Um, you don't, what, what about those issues? Well, I think that host nation support is probably not going to go away. I think it's stuck in President Trump's mind. CSIS did some really good work uh, mm -hmm. historically going back mm -hmm. and looking at some of that. Uh, and so I do imagine that it might come up, but I think there's also a set of well-rehearsed arguments that South Korea can present uh, for the idea that it's moving together in partnership. In fact, you know, one of the most interesting ones may be the nuclear consultative group, where, I mean, South Korea wants to be in that process, but it's also stepping up yeah. as part of that process. So there's a, there, there are some new tools that are available and some new avenues for that discussion to develop. Um, and um, I think the real key is to um, try to raise the costs for President Trump of defection from the alliance and provide him some uh, near-term political benefits for adhering to it. Mm -hmm. And what about troop withdrawals? Um, I, I don't necessarily uh, know what that would look like. Um, I think that uh, you know the big question is really whether or not President Trump may come back and say, okay, uh, go ahead and develop some kind of nuclear capability and use that as a um, uh, in tandem with a possible threat of troop withdrawals. Mm. Uh, and so I do think that um, the alliance will be under some different kinds of stresses um, if the first Trump administration uh, is a good model. We'll probably use the word unprecedented on a number of occasions to describe what might happen. Mm. Uh, but I don't necessarily want to project that the alliance is automatically doomed just because just because President Trump might come back to office. Yeah. The um, so obviously one of the signature achievements of the Biden administration when it comes to the alliance has been Camp David and this newfound institutionalization of this trilateral relationship among the three allies. I think most people forget. I mean, most people forget that prior to Camp David, uh, any trilateral meeting that we had with our allies was by definition ad hoc, right? Because it was not in any sort of framework of, or of any sort, with the, ex the one exception possibly being uh, the Trilateral Cooperation and Oversight Group, TCOG, during the Clinton administration that Bill Perry started to deal specifically with North Korean contingencies. But now we have this framework, um, uh, Mirap Hooper, the senior director at the NSC the other day said that there were something like 30 meetings that have taken place since Camp David trilaterally between the three countries. Um, how do you think that this will fare? Um, or or I, I don't want to put you constantly in these positions where you have to make predictions, but yeah. but what do you think will matter most in terms of how, um, how South Korea should think about this and how you, you think that uh, the Trump administration might think about this particular issue? Well, in the context of a political transition um, uh, to a Trump administration, I worry about trilateralism. Uh, and I understand the argument for institutionalization. 
And I understand the desire to try to use institutionalization as a way of locking in trilateral cooperation, uh, but I'm not sure that that is going to be sufficient to stop a President Trump who, if he identifies that as a major accomplishment of the Biden administration, um, he might be determined to try to unravel it. Uh, and so in that sense, I think that trilateralism is kind of the canary in the coal mine as related to uh, deinstitutionalization uh, in connection with some of our uh, alliance cooperation. Uh, we need to watch that pretty carefully. Uh, the reason why I'm concerned about the future of trilateralism is because I remember that um, at the end of the Obama administration, uh, the U.S., South Korea, and Japan started their uh, deputy secretaries trilateral dialogue among mm -hmm. the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. Blinken and of course, at that time, those, yeah. Blinken was the deputy secretary. Cho Tae-yong was the uh, vice minister uh, in South Korea. Uh, and as soon as we got to the Trump administration, that disappeared mm. uh, from uh, the repertoire uh, in terms of what was happening diplomatically. Uh, and so I do believe that there, I, I do believe that uh, there is a possibility that uh, trilateral cooperation could be at risk uh, and that institutionalization might be seen as the equivalent of the swamp that has to be drained. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, I would watch carefully. Now, there are some things about trilateral cooperation that I think uh, advertise themselves as potentially being different, and it's a different context. And I think the big one uh, is the fact that um, under Yoon and under the Kishida administration, both Japan and South Korea are pulling in the same direction. Uh, and so that's different from the past periods, as you well know, when we've seen trouble in the trilateral relationship. It's, it's usually South Korean progressives that uh, generate the biggest problems for trilateral cooperation. And so I think a really interesting question would be whether or not Japan and South Korea might actually even uh, bind themselves together a little bit more closely in an effort to try to convince uh, the Trump administration to uh, stick with trilateralism. Mm. That would be really interesting and something that I don't think that we've seen before. Do you think it's possible that there would be people in a second Trump administration who would see trilateralism as certainly something that's a positive thing, even though it was an achievement of the previous administration, in, in particular in the context of China? Um, to make the argument that this is very important for dealing with China. I mean, the um, Koreans and the Japanese might feel uncomfortable with it being put that front and center, but, you know, do you think that might be... Because arguably one of the things that has changed, right, has been the, the China issue from when we talked about trilateralism during Obama to, to now. That's right. And I think China is obviously the factor that has driven a lot of this uh, trilateral coordination as it is. You know, in many respects, I think what I, I don't really explicitly say this in my book, but on this particular issue, uh, I think that, you know, one of the interesting tensions that is clear over the course of the past few years is that we're on this continuum. On the one hand, um, the deepening of major power rivalry is driving. Uh, new forms of institutional cooperation. But on the other hand, we do have this um, phenomenon of domestic political polarization that can potentially weaken that uh, or undermine it. And so I kind of think of those two factors as the ends of the rubber band uh, that are pulling against each other. Uh, and I worry a little bit about the potential energy caused by some of those tensions. Uh, but uh, it's really a battle between those two. And so far, I think in recent years, it's really clearly been 
the concerns about major power rivalry that have driven uh, cooperation trilaterally. So, I mean, on that, um, I think, I mean, so I think, I mean, part of this is, so if we look at the uh, the, um, the economic agenda by the, not the economic agenda, the economic competition agenda by the Biden administration, so-called de-risking, uh, small yard, high fence sort of thing, you know, I can imagine continuity there because Trump's people will just tell him, well, Mr. President, th these were your ideas. They, they were just copying your ideas. I mean, it, arguably, they could say the same thing about trilateralism, right? They could say, well, you know, they just they just basically built on the ideas that you started in your first term, Mr. President. And, and yes, yeah, yeah, I can totally see that argument being made. Yeah. Um, but I somehow trilateral trilateralism feels a little bit more like a political accomplishment, and that's the reason why I worry about it a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right. One of the very interesting through lines, I think, from uh, Obama to Trump and then Trump to Biden, and we'll have to see what you know happens, is really, um, really, especially Trump to Biden, you know, this issue of continuity in some forms of economic policy yeah. uh, driven by major power rivalry. And so I, in the book, I also try to deal a little bit with um, how South Korea views China. Um, of course, uh, you've written a book about that, too. I have. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it really just tried to get into some of the South Korean domestic debates, and that has evolved. That's probably the one area where I feel like there have been developments that have evolved since I really was trying to, you know, uh, write the book. Uh, but, you know, and, and so now South Korea is very much, you know, in this category of uh, offshore balancing together with Japan and the United States. Um, it certainly did not, it, it was not, I think, from the perspective of two or three years ago, um, it would not have been easy to predict that that's where South Korea was going to be. So I did dig in a little bit to some of the strands of domestic debate uh, as related to views of China uh, in the book, and also tried to capture some of the impact of, uh, I like to call it the securitization of technology. Uh, I think you like the weaponization of economic interdependence, mm -hmm. which is probably a more grounded academic term, mm -hmm. um, uh, on how South Korea is making decisions vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. and China. Mm. So, let, I mean, on the domestic polarization part, on the, <clears throat> um, on the South Korean side, I mean, you mentioned China. On, on, on issues like this um, securitization of technology or or um, de-risking, um, how, how do you see that? I mean, in terms of the way that breaks down domestically in South Korea, are, is, there, is there bipartisan support for that, or, or do you see differences there? Well, in terms of the available public opinion, I think that it's pretty clear that there's been a South Korean negative turn uh, in processions of China, and a lot of that was driven by THAAD. And I don't necessarily see that much differentiation uh, at the public opinion level. Um, the area that I think poses the greatest potential risk to the direction that uh, the UN administration has gone in uh, is really related to uh, the loss in practical terms of some of the bilateral, uh, the benefits that derive from South Korea-China trade, uh, and especially in particular industries where uh, China had been active uh, to South Korea's benefit. Of course, a lot of those got shut down by THAAD, uh, but it doesn't mean that, uh, especially on the um, 
uh, South Korean West Coast, you know, Incheon, that they don't feel it when China does not resume growth. Uh, and so I'm a little bit concerned uh, about some of the costs uh, related to China's failure to recover. Uh, and its potential impact on uh, South Korean perceptions. Yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, on, um, again, uh, following the theme, on another issue, sort of GPS of the UN government and uh, particularly all that they're doing in Ukraine. Um, what, I mean, what do you think happens to, I mean, GPS isn't the only element. I mean, sorry, Ukraine isn't the only element of GPS, but it's a very prominent one, right? I mean, it's a big step by Korea, I think. Um, uh, the administration said the other day that South Korea and Japan are providing more to Ukraine these days than many NATO allies. Um, and Trump has said on day one he would end the war in Ukraine, presumably meaning that he would abandon Ukraine. What, what do you think, what would, what would happen in a situation like that? Um, would the, because of domestic polarization in South Korea, do you think the government would really find itself on its back heels um, trying to justify continuing this kind of support? I do think that there would be a stronger pushback uh, on that particular issue. But if I step back and look at where South Korea has been going uh, in terms of its global profile, uh, I see a continued positive trajectory there. Mm. Uh, and so Ukraine may not necessarily be uh, the most uh, apt manifestation of South Korea's desire. Uh, to play a global role in the context of a Trump administration, but I think it will be replaced by other issues. Uh, another way of putting this is that, you know, back in 2020, uh, when the G7 was held in the UK and um, President Moon was invited by President Trump, right at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, President Moon did not hesitate. Uh, he wanted to be engaged at that level. And I think that more broadly speaking, uh, it's probably a widely held South Korean aspiration uh, to uh, see uh, the country represented um, effectively at top table gatherings uh, in um, uh, around the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, um, uh, if we could, let's shift to uh, North Korea. Um, uh, so. Um, if Kim Jong-un had a vote, who do you think he'd vote for in this next election? Oh, um, yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question. Um, I, you know, I think that there is an inclination right at this moment to think that North Korea is waiting for Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the, the ramifications and the reverberations from the failed Hanoi summit were, I think, pretty significant. I'm not sure that there's any love lost on Kim Jong-un's side uh, for Trump. At least we don't see evidence of that yet. Mm. Um, but I also think that uh, um, Kim Jong-un has no special love for Biden uh, yeah. either. So I'm guessing that he might just be happy to sit this one out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, um, so on that, I mean, what are the... You know, there was this um, article in Politico this week, or la I, I should say last week, uh, that reportedly had the opinions of some advisor to Trump about what Trump's new North Korea policy would be, which would be to essentially accept North Korea as a nuclear weapon state 
and then lift sanctions in return for arms control and getting them to basically behave as a responsible nuclear weapon state, presumably part of a overall disengagement strategy where the United States under Trump sheds the cost of having to um, deal with this North Korean nuclear program as it has for the, as the United States has for the last 30, 35 years. Um, I'm not going to ask you to comment on the report, but I mean, I, I guess part of it is what do you think of that as a strategy? Is it feasible? And in the context of domestic polarization in the two countries, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you think about that particular idea? So as it's played out with the political article and then Trump's clarification on Truth Social, it actually made me feel like it reminded me of the 2016 campaign a lot, mm-hmm. where um, President Trump you know, played up the threat from North Korea, but he also talked about a summit even during the campaign. Mm-hmm. And so I just see him you know, framing the choices that he is conceiving uh, in tension with each other, uh, possibly in preparation to maximize the benefit of making that choice, because if he has to make that choice, all eyes will be on him. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't necessarily see it as, even though he denied the possibility of pursuing an arms control route, um, I don't necessarily buy that. I mean, after all, uh, what was Trump's tweet when he got back from Singapore? It was, well, he solved the North Korea problem, right? Uh, When actually, arguably, he put in a framework for managing the North Korea problem uh, that worked for him through the rest of his administration, uh, but it came nowhere close to solving the North Korea problem. Mm. Uh, And so likewise, I think, you know, at this point, the terms of debate have kind of moved on and the way of making it interesting maybe for him is to dangle arms control, but also uh, indicate that he's going to go in a very a much harder direction yeah i mean it's it's uh it i mean it's it's an interesting idea in large part because we're bankrupt of ideas about how to deal with north korea right now well i think that it's his best efforts to try to put forward something that he thinks could manage the problem Mm -hmm. uh probably maybe because he doesn't believe that it's solvable but i think there would also be a lot of uh pushback uh from various quarters the UN administration, the U.S. Congress, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the Japan, swamp, Japan uh, as well. Japan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So a lot of uh, a lot of obstacles to going down that route, uh, and um, I, I'm not sure even Trump would be able to overcome all of those obstacles. Yeah. Um, um, uh, our last question is that Trump, you know. Trump is very much about personality politics, and uh, you know he famously had good relationships with some leaders, very bad relationships with others, was uh, very willing to criticize others in public, like Merkel or Trudeau or or, or others. How do you think um, President Yun and President Trump would get along? Well, I don't know. I think a lot of it depends on how the Trump, how the uh, Yun team assesses um, the first administration. Uh, and how they develop a strategy uh, for ad- addressing uh, Trump. Uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, President Yoon has been so vocal in expressing uh, the universality of ideas such as freedom, uh, and implicitly, I think that uh, his approach is one that acknowledges the U.S. as a leader uh, in that area. 
but uh, he also has not shown any inclination, and I think maybe would not necessarily show much of an inclination to challenge the United States. And that's where, I think that's what, distinct, what is distinctive about the leaders who had trouble with uh, Trump in the first administration. Uh, they were all people who, uh, by reputation or in actuality, were perceived as challenging President Trump to some degree uh, when he really wanted to be at the center of the room. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Um, anyway, again, the book is The United States-South Korea Alliance, Why It May Fail and Why It Must Not, just out by good friend Scott Scott Snyder. Uh, again, a great holiday gift for those of you who are doing some last-minute shopping. Uh, this is going to be our last episode of The Impossible State for 2023. Uh, to everyone, I hope you have a great holiday season and a good new year, and we will see you in 2024. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate@csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean Peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.